0: Well, again, thank you for being here this morning. It's, uh, it's really good to go ahead and wrap up this series. Uh, we've been in the series 2018 in review uh, since January 14th, I believe. And so we've been hitting over the last several weeks, uh, we've been hitting some of the major topics, some of the major things that were talked about over the course of 2018, we started uh, we, we started this series with covering the issue of Fortnite, which is not really an issue. It's just kind of a fact that millions of young males around our country are playing this video game Fortnite uh, until like 4 a.m. Uh, so we talked about God's good gifts, His uh, His grace that He's given us through good gifts, as long as they don't become idolatrous to us. Uh, the second thing that we talked about was a, a pretty heavy message on. The Parkland shooting, and we remember we, we said that, that Jesus, as He visited Lazarus, he, he wept. And so it's okay for us as Christians, as human beings, we need to stop and pause and think about things that happen like that in our country. It's not okay for us to just move on. These are human beings that are made in the image and likeness of God, and, and so we mourn in times like that. But we also allow Jesus to work in those situations allow Jesus to work even in the midst of life's hardest times. And last week we covered uh, the, the movie Black Panther. That was a, a pretty fun one. Uh, we covered the movie Black Panther, talked about how, uh, how because of this uh, it brings up a lot of issues of race, brings up a lot of questions about how our country deals with racism, and we, uh, we said that that was a, a blatant sin. Again, we are all human beings made in the image li- and likeness of Jesus Christ, of God our, our Father, so we are image bearers, and to hate or to, to be um, different towards anybody of another skin color is Sinful, and it's something that Jesus Christ came to the cross and died for. Now, today we're gonna uh, we're gonna hit one of the biggest topics of last year. We're gonna hit something that is uh, probably a very sensitive topic, probably the most sensitive of uh, of all of them. Uh, and it's kind of been built up in our in our church. It's kind of been built up as. Uh, like the biggest sermon I've probably ever preached, at least in terms of anticipation. Nothing short of the Gettysburg Address or like the the Sermon on the Mount is going to do this morning. I'm just going to ask just up front and going to ask for a lot of grace. Uh, Probably not going to say everything that you want to to hear. Probably not going to say everything um, that needs to be said. Uh, in 30 to 45 minutes, it's just about impossible. As I'm doing the research and as I'm studying, talking about the, the Me Too movement and how we work together as a church, as we work together as men and women, I, it really came down to the fact that we could probably spend weeks on this, if not months on this topic and on this, this issue. And so again, uh, if if you want to like eat lunch here, we can. Um, but it's probably I'm probably not going to say everything that you want to hear this morning. And so again, I just ask for a lot of grace uh, here. Um, and that being said, let's go ahead and let's just pray and then ask the Lord to work this morning. Father, we again uh, we just stop and pause, God and I pause before you. I kneel before you and ask, Lord, to just be a vessel right now for your spirit to speak through. Um, Lord, you know that in the preparation um, and, and hopefully in the delivery, nothing I've said, nothing that's, that's here is, is opinion. Um, it's, not, um, it's not how I feel. Um, it's really just what your word says. And so I pray that that would speak and that your spirit um, would do the talking. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Now, if you're not familiar with Me Too, um, again, this is probably one of the biggest topics, one of the most talked about topics of all of last year. Um, It kind of even started in late 2017. Um, It is probably highlighted as as one of the most talked about events in our country. And so obviously that's why we're talking about it here in the church. Because if you're not going to talk about it here, where else are you going to talk about it? Uh, You're talking about it. You know, you're just talking about it at the dinner table, or you're talking about it at work. Uh, You're talking about these issues, and so why not address them from the stage? Why not address them from the perspective of what God has to say, from what the Bible has to say about these issues? And Now, this movement is highlighted by thousands, if not millions, of of women uh, who came forward admitting sexual abuse, who came forward admitting rape who came forward admitting unwanted sexual advances and uh, discrimination in the workplace at some point in their life. And several of them, uh, there were several men that were also involved in this, where they came forward and said, I have been sexually assaulted, I have been raped, I have been uh, made unwanted sexual advances, that, that's happened to me, it's in the workplace I'm being discriminated against, uh, and so many people came forward by the thousands, um, and thankfully, thankfully, many of these women, they named uh, their assailants in the process. They came forward and they named the folks that had done this to them. And so last year, there were, there were many times where... where uh, it seemed like every week there was a new headline about somebody where this, th- these allegations were brought against them, and they, they were brought down, so to speak, because of, uh, because of their past failings. And, and many of the, the perpetrators, and, and let's just be honest, many of the rapists uh, were exposed as celebrities, as actors, as teachers, as coaches, as bosses, uh, and, and sometimes even family members were, were responsible for this. Um, there weren't many places in the social realm that were untouched uh, by these findings. There weren't many places where, where it wasn't found out that somebody had committed this, uh, had committed this crime. But you see, it's, it also hit on a very local level. Um, this is not just something that happened out there in the news. It's not just something that happened out there in the country. This is something that, that hit home on a very, very, very personal level. Um, it seemed like for just about a couple months there, um, it seemed like whenever the news started to break, that every time I jumped on Facebook or every time I would hear some type of story, those sad words would pop up on the screen from a family member, from a friend, from a past high school classmate. Those two sad words, me too. It should be grieving our hearts, should be breaking our hearts. And I know people that were affected by this. You probably know people that were affected by me, too. Um, We weren't untouched by this. Now, let's bring it home even more. According to uh, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, which is a a national resource, um, I I want you to hear these stats. I I want you to hear this one in five women will be raped at some point in their life. One in five women. In the U.S., one in three women have experienced some form of contact sexual violence. This isn't verbal. This is actually, there's a physical altercation there. One in three women. 91% of the victims of rape and sexual assault are female. 91%. And this is probably the most telling of all. According to the same site, 65% of sexual assaults are not recorded to the police. Well, you might be asking, okay, why, why aren't they reporting this? Why aren't these things reported if this happens? You see, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. Many times these, um, the assailants, the, the, the people committing these crimes, they're, it's a boyfriend. It's a family member. It's a boss. It's a person of influence. And so these crimes aren't reported to the police because many of these, these ladies feel like if they come forward with this, one, they have to deal uh, with just uh, the shame of the matter, have to come forward and admit this, but they also are putting their lives in jeopardy uh, because if they admit these these things that have happened to them, these people of influence could damage their lives forever um, and in the social realm. And I just want to say this morning, um, this should cause us to be angry. This should cause us to be outraged. Unfortunately and sadly, one of the most silent people in all of this this Me Too movement was the church. This is probably the first sermon you've ever even preached, heard preached on the Me Too. I'm not the first person to speak on it, but this is probably the first sermon you've ever heard preached on. We're silent on this issue. We're silent on the fact that many of our friends, neighbors, family members, people inside the church are abused and hurt and broken. And this is not something that I feel comfortable that we should just be silent in. This is not something that I feel comfortable in being passive about. This is something that we should speak up on. This is something that we're not untouched by. You see, I, I have a wife, I have a mom and I love them both dearly. Um, I, I don't have a daughter that I know of, um, and that's not a promiscuous joke. Uh, my wife and I, we actually are expecting our first and don't know the gender yet, but here's the thing. If I have a daughter, I really don't want her growing up in a world where this is okay. I don't want my wife, my mom, growing up in an environment where they have to worry about unwanted sexual advances, where they have to worry about sexual references, where they have to worry about uh, where it's one in five women that, that have to go through this. I really don't want that. And so one, we, we have to step up. We have to speak out against this. And if you're a guy in the room this morning, I hope you stand with me. I hope you stand with me. The Bible's very clear about this. We see in the Old Testament where several times where men jump into situations where they take women that God didn't give them that aren't their wives where they take many spouses and what happens every single time? Sin follows. Chaos follows. Devastation follows. Even in the New Testament where we see where, where, where Jesus and where Paul where they give these words about there shall not be any sexuality or any, any sexual immorality uh, among you. It shouldn't be among you, that, that word pornea, which means no sexual immorality among you at all. And it seems like we can speak out against all the sexual immorality about unwed marriage and you know, we can speak out against all the issues against this one sexual abuse and it is not okay. It's not okay. Um, so those are just the facts. That's the truth. Um, those are just the facts. But uh, see, what's happened here um, in, in this movement and in our culture, and I don't know if you watch TV, you've, you've seen the Gillette commercial, whatever it is, I, I don't know what you've talked about or, or how this is in, uh, talked about in your circles, but what's happened um, is it's really brought into question, okay, what is a man supposed to be, right? Like, what is a man supposed to be? What is a man supposed to look like? Well, is masculinity even healthy? Is it healthy for men to, to be masculine? What is, what is a man supposed to do? It's brought all of those questions into our society if you're following along. And, and after all these stats come out, you know, the fact that 90% of, of those who have been in the Me Too movement, 90% of them are, are female, it kind of does put us guys in a negative light, right? It kind of, we're the ones committing the crimes, right? So there's got to be something wrong with them. And so that's kind of where our country is. We've kind of drifted into the extreme where we look at masculinity, where we look at manhood in a very negative light. It's kind of drifted into that. And you see, here's the thing. We, we've kind of been led to believe, we've been led to believe in our culture that either this side is right where this side is right. My side's on the right side of history. No, my side's on the right side of history. We've been led to believe that you have to be on either one of these opposite sides, that you have to be on either extreme, that there is no middle ground. And I'm here to tell you that there actually is a middle ground that you can take. There is a middle ground, and it's called the biblical way And so we're gonna uh, today. We're just gonna allow our worldview. We're gonna allow our perspective to not be shaped by what Fox News has to say. We're not gonna allow our worldview to be shaped by what CNN has to say. What our politicians have to say. We're gonna just allow the scriptures to form our worldview, to form our perspective. And so the bottom line this morning, if you don't take anything else away from this sermon, the bottom line is this: it's very simple. Is that the only solution? the only solution to the healing, to the action, to the prevention of, and to stop these crimes from happening is Jesus Christ. He's the only source that, that we have for, for healing. Jesus says, that, I'm near to the brokenhearted, that He cares deeply for these women that have been affected. And He cares deeply for it. And He's not away from this, that He actually came to the cross to die for events and for things just like this. He's near to those ladies who are hurting, who are broken. It's near to His heart. He cares so much about it that He came to die for it, but here's the point, that He's actually coming back to reckon with it. That although there are 65% of these things that that are not reported, that most people don't know about, there is a heavenly Father who knows about every single one of these cases. He knows the truth. And He's coming back one day to deal with it. He's coming back. And so He's near enough to feel the pain, but there's also no incident that He's not aware of. But I just have to say that that manhood and masculinity is is not the problem. The problem is not manhood, it's not men. Men. It's not what we've, uh, it's not who we are. The problem is that w- there is no clear and present biblical teaching on manhood. There's no clear and present biblical teaching on who man, man is supposed to be, on who man is. And so we've allowed our culture to teach what manhood is, we've allowed our, our, our fathers basically to be absent from the bringing up of children from our from our rearing of children fathers are are basically absent in the whole process and so the bottom line this morning is that the solution to the me too movement is not just to teach men to keep their hands to themselves but it's to teach men to also give their hearts to Jesus that's the solution here this morning so let's talk about manhood if you have your bibles go ahead and turn to genesis chapter 2 genesis chapter 2 that's where we camping out for just a little bit. I want to teach a little bit of this, and then we're going to move on to a a great example of exactly what we're talking about, this Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Those words should be up on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. That's our gift to you. Genesis chapter 2, whenever you got it, say, I'm there. All right, we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 2, 24-25. This is after God's created the heavens and the earth. God's put put the stars where they need to go. He's put the sun where it needs to go. He's created Adam and He's created Eve. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now, this is one of those particular places where God has—he's raised up Adam and Eve. He said, "Be fruitful, be be, be those who multiply. Uh, this is your this is your earth. You have dominion over it. This is this, you are the managers of my creation." And then he just he brings Adam and Eve together, and he creates this this equality where they're both made in the image of God. They're both image bearers of God. Yes. Adam was created first, but he was not created with more importance than Eve. He wasn't created in any more image of God than than was female, than was Eve. And so he's created them, he's put them in the garden. They have equal value, equal importance, but they have difference in gifting. And so from the very beginning of history, we see that Adam was set up and established in the garden. He says, therefore you shall leave his father and his mother, he shall hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man, they were both naked, they were not ashamed, which means that they procreated. Here comes comes Cain, here comes Abel. This is exactly the picture that God set up from the very beginning of time. That man, Adam here specifically, was supposed to leave his parents' home. Leave his parents' home. You get out. You find a vocation, you find a job, not just a a dead-end job at GameStop, but you find a real job. You find a career, and you find a lady, you marry her, you honor her, you court her, you honor her. And it it says that you parent children with her, God willing. And this is exactly what Adam did in the very beginning of time. This is exactly what he did, with exception to leaving his parents home. He, he, took, a, he took Eve and he courted her, he dated her, he, he provided for her, had a real job working in the fields, not exactly like Boeing or anything like that, and he parents children with her. This is exactly what God intended. This is God's good design for creation. This, the pattern between men and women, it's not a church construct, it's not a social construct, it's not a cultural construct, this is a God-ordained construct. This is something that God put into place in the very beginning of time, where he said they're both made with equality, they're both made in my image, but I'm giving you differences in gifts. Now Adam, here is your role. Man, here is your role. This is what you're supposed to look like. This is what you're supposed to do that you take responsibility, that you step up into leadership. This is a good design. And they have a great relationship here in the garden. They walked together. They were before God, praying together in their relationship, where, where God kind of was in the middle. Now you know, just as well as I do, that in Genesis chapter 3, something enters into the world and breaks the picture, right? Like it doesn't stay this way for long. Genesis chapter 3, man's tempted in the garden, he takes the fruit, he eats of it, and from there on, every single relationship that we know on this planet Earth is just distorted. The relationship between Adam, Eve, and God, it's broken, it's distorted. They looked at God and said, we would rather have your stuff over you. We would rather rebel in our hearts against you. If you or I were in that boat, we would have done the same exact thing. We talked about this last week in racism, that racism started in Genesis chapter 3, because not only was our relationship with God distorted, not only was our relationship with God broken, but our relationships with each other was broken. And it's here in Genesis chapter 3 that man's relationship with woman becomes broken, becomes distorted. And that's where we are today. Like, it only took me to get to the sixth grade, and I finally realized, like, something's not right with this picture. Like, I just don't mesh well with the ladies. And this confrontation that we have with with men and with women, it started in Genesis chapter 3. Whenever we broke God's good design, whenever we said we'd rather have it our own way, it has led us, this is what we call the fall, the fall has brought us where we are today. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, this is exactly where we get lazy man, right? Genesis chapter 3, this is where we get lazy man. This is where we get the adolescent man who plays Fortnite on his Xbox until 4 a.m. This is where that started. Genesis chapter 3, the adolescent man, the the boys who can shave, the 30-year-old who does nothing, who who doesn't work, who lives in his mom's basement, that's where this started in Genesis chapter 3. As you can tell, I'm really passionate about this issue. (sighs) Chauvinistic man, he enters in here. The one who pokes his chest out. You know, he's drinking the the creatine at the gym. The one that's grunting. Like chauvinistic man, he enters here. Egotistical man, this is where he enters in Genesis chapter 3. Passive man who won't stand up to anybody. Who won't say anything. Who allows everybody to walk all over him. Who cowers at the face of fear. That enters here in Genesis chapter 3. Dominant man. That's where he enters too in Genesis chapter 3. Every distortion and every bad picture, every bad image that we see of a man, you know, the dad who sits there, the the Homer Simpson dad, if you will, the family guy dad, if you will, This is where we get it, Genesis chapter 3. Broken picture of man, broken picture of, of manhood. These are all distortions of what true man and manhood and masculinity is supposed to be. It's a broken picture, and, and you see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we get glimpses of what a, a real man's supposed to be like. We we see leaders like Moses, we see leaders like Abraham, we see leaders like King David, we see leaders like Nehemiah, leaders like Joshua, like Elijah, like Daniel, who say, "I'm not going to stand for what the culture is doing. I'm not. I'm not going to sit silently, and I'm going to lead these people into something great." We see glimpses of that all throughout the Bible. All throughout Scripture, but none of them were perfect. Every single one of them failed in some way. Every single one of these these Old Testament heroes, the guys that we highlight, the guys that we look up to, they were distortions of what a real man's supposed to look like. Don't you like that saying, real man, right? Like a man's man. Every single one of those guys, they were distortions of what a, a real man was supposed to look like. And we don't see a picture of what a perfect man is supposed to look like until Jesus Christ walks on this earth. Luke 7, turn there if you got it. Luke 7. One of my favorite passages or narratives about Jesus is Luke 7. Jesus is the perfect man. Perfect man. Parents, you are raising up daughters You know, what kind of spouse do they need to look for? One who looks the most like Jesus. And I don't mean like long hair and a beard or anything like that. I just, one who acts the most like Jesus. Luke 7, if you're there, say I'm there. Let's look at what Jesus does. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, being Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that she was reclining at the table in the when Pharise- learned, learned that he being Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisees' house she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears that's got to be a lot of tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment Let's just stop right there. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is one, sitting at a table with a bunch of Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the ones that are sitting at the table. They look down their nose at everybody. They judge everybody. They really don't want to have lunch with dinner. The whole point and the whole reason that they're, they're sitting with Jesus anyway is just so they could catch Him in some kind of trial and catch Him in some kind of temptation where they can make Him look bad to the rest of society. And sure enough, in this moment, exactly what happens? This lady, it says, this lady, and not just any lady, this lady who's known around town as a sinner, it doesn't even say what type of sin that she's committed. It's just her reputation. A sinner comes and she sits at the feet of Jesus and she just weeps. And she weeps so much to the point where she's able to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears. And she anoints and she, she washes over Jesus' feet here. You see, Jesus has a tender heart. Jesus has a very tender heart. And at this moment right here, he, He's a tender man. He's breaking all sorts of cultural rules. One, He's not supposed to have any dealings with women. A particular rabbi or a teacher of this, of this type would have especially not had any dealings with, with females, with women. And not only that, but she's shunned. Like she is considered a second class citizen. She's a, quote, sinner. Nobody would have had any dealings with her. The Pharisees didn't want anything to do with her. They looked down on Jesus because he has something to do with her. She's an outcast of society, and you would expect. And they're watching and they're waiting. Jesus, what's he going to do? Is he going to stand up and like, "What are you doing? Don't touch me! Don't even look at me!" Is that? They're kind of waiting on Jesus to do that. Jesus doesn't do anything. He just sits there, and he allows this lady who's been in sin to anoint him, to touch his feet with the oil and with the tears one who's been pushed to the margins of life. He says, I accept her. I welcome you. And he's looking around at all the Pharisees. And let's see exactly what he says. Uh, Let's see exactly what he says. Pick up there in verse 38, um, 39. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, I mean, they're putting Jesus to the test, Jesus is a prophet and even more than that, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He's saying, one, Jesus, you know good and well, you're not supposed to be dealing with any women, but second of all, you're not supposed to be dealing with a woman who is a sinner. This is one of those moments in society, you know, one of those moments like you're just eating lunch or something like that, having a conversation, and the music just stops, and the music dies, and everybody's kind of wondering and wanting to know what's going to happen next. That's exactly what's happening here. It says, for he, for he knows that she is a sinner, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So he's kind of speaking out of reference to the, to the Pharisees there, and he's going to tell this story. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged Rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, he loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, Jesus was a tender-hearted man. And this is not the only point in time where we see this. Jesus, Jesus was tender-hearted. This is, we see this all throughout the Bible where he says, "Let the little children come unto me, and unless you receive the kingdom of heaven with childlike faith, you can't enter into it." And what he's saying is that even the least of these in society, they have my heart, even the least of these. And just like Jesus, so should we have tender hearts, hearts that are broken. And I imagine whenever he's picking these children up, like he's smiling at them. The picture of a perfect man is not someone who's always callous, not someone who, who can't smile, who can't laugh. The picture of, a, of an ideal man, a man of true masculinity, one who imitates and mirrors his life after Jesus is a man who is tenderhearted, who is brokenhearted over issues like Me Too. But he's not only tender-hearted, though, is he? He's not just tender-hearted. Because he's standing here with the religious elite, like the ones who will eventually put him to death. And he's sitting there, he's going toe-to-toe with them. Like he's having words, so to speak, with these Pharisees. And he's pointing out the sins of their lives. And he's calling out blind spots that he says. He says, you know what? Whenever I came into your house, you didn't anoint my feet. With oil, you didn't, you didn't put oil on my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You had no respect for me. These did, but you didn't. You see, Jesus was tough, but Jesus was not, only, uh, he was not only tender, but he was also tough. He was tough as nails. He went toe-to-toe with the best of them. I love these pictures of Jesus, how one minute he's with the children, and one minute he's with the, the ladies, and he's mending their broken hearts, and then the very next, like he's wrestling with demons. He's calling out sin with the Pharisees. I love this picture of Jesus. You see, Jesus was tender, but he was also tough. And at the very end, we we talk about Jesus like, you know, I, I don't know what type of picture you image in your head of Jesus. You know, sometimes whenever I was a little kid, I pictured Jesus, you know, he's carrying around the little lamb and he's like passing out suckers to all the little children. He's got the purple stash, you know, and he's, you know, he's eating crackers and stuff like that. That's not really the picture of Jesus. And it's certainly not the picture of Jesus that Revelation sets out before us, where Jesus is coming back on a white horse with eyes that are like flames, and he's got this tattoo on his thighs, and he's coming to deal and reckon with sin. Like, Jesus is tough. Jesus is real tough. I love this picture of Christ. He is the perfect combination of both tenderness and toughness. He is our picture of perfect manhood. What sin has distorted, Jesus Christ comes and redeems. He comes and He sets before us the real picture of manhood. And you see, the best news of this whole situation is that there is no better picture in all of the Bible where this uh, this attitude of toughness yet tenderness meets than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where on one hand, he's tough, he's dealing with the agony, he's dealing with the torture, he's dealing with his beard ripped out, he's dealing with a crown of thorns over his... He's dealing with the weight of our sin, dealing with the wrath of God, yet at the same time can look out the crowd and say, John, behold your mother Mary. Toughness and tenderness at the same time. And this is the good news this morning. Where Christ came to die for broken manhood, where Christ came to die for me too, where Christ came to die for the brokenness and the hearts that are broken, the lives that have been changed forever. Christ came into the world to be our perfect picture for this, to be our perfect picture. So men, let's be tender. Let's be tender hearted. Where we can stand in the gap, For those who don't have fathers. Where we can stand in the gap for those pushed to the margins of society. A real man would not overlook those who have been taken advantage of. He would have a tender heart to weep with those who weep. He would have a tender heart to, to have a broken heart for those that are broken. He would say, I care for the stories of the thousands of women whose lives have been impacted. Who wouldn't just change the channel because they see women marching in the street? Who wouldn't just change the, the station because some other ladies come forward, but he would stop and he would realize that one in five women have been affected by this. He would be grieved, he would be tender-hearted enough to hurt over this matter. Jesus would be. But let's not also just be tender-hearted but let's be tough. Let's be tough about it. Let's confront the issue. Let's step into those places where we need to step in. We need to stand up for those that have been broken and say, this is not right, and I'm not going to stand for it. Where We're not afraid to confront darkness. We're not afraid to bring things to the light and say, Jesus would have stood against it, and I'm going to stand against it too. It's what we have to do. If we're going to look like Jesus being both tough and tender. And so we've, we've kind of talked about it. A little. We've talked about what perfect manhood is. And again, we're leaving a lot of meat on the bones, so to speak. There's a lot that we can speak. I can talk about this the rest of the day. And so that's kind of addressing the men. But let's, let's talk to the ladies for just a second. Luke chapter 8. If you've got it, turn there. Luke chapter 8. Same page do the same exact chapter Soon afterward he being Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him meaning the disciples and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I'm going to be honest with you. As I was studying this week, this is one of the very first times where that, those three verses really jumped off the page to me, where Jesus is not just accompanied by the disciples, but Jesus being com- accompanied by many women, too. Women who had broken hearts that were mended. Mary Magdalene here, who had been, who had, had seven demons, had been healed by seven demons, and healed of the evil spirits there. You see, there was this group of women that followed Jesus, and they considered Jesus their healer. And they considered Jesus their leader. And they were loyal to him, they, were, they had allegiance to Christ. Now, I've always pictured, you know, whenever Jesus is, is kind of moving around, He's doing His ministry, He's got the 12 disciples. But Luke 8, 1 through 3, tells us that it wasn't just a bunch of men that followed Jesus, but there were women too. And you can picture, you can kind of imagine with me for just a second where this lady's hurt and she's broken and and Jesus steps into the situation and He he heals and, and He brings forgiveness and He brings her into the fold. And where Jesus, He heals this lady and He kind of mends her story, redeems her out of her brokenness, brings her into the fold. And He does it for this lady, brings her into the fold. And sure enough, you've got a church full of women who have just started following Jesus. I love this picture. Well, Christ has women that are following after Him. You see, you know, we, we get into this, this thing in our culture where it's either all about the men in the church or the church is too feminine. No, the church is beautiful, a, a beautiful place where it's tough men, tender men, women who have forgiveness, women who bring a lot to the table together. It's this beautiful community of what God can do. I love this picture. And so they, they went with Jesus, they followed him, and Jesus wasn't afraid to be found as their leader. He wasn't afraid to be found with a lot of ladies that were following after him. And so if you're here this morning and, and, and you've been impacted by this, this Me Too, I just want to say, if this is your past and if this is your story, we're going to be a church who cries with you, who cares deeply about this issue, who will walk through this the best we can with you, who will provide the best resources that we can, best possible resources and, and prayer and time that we will spend devoting to this, but my best advice that I I can think of is just like these ladies who are here following after Jesus is that you have to bring it to God. You have to allow Him to be your healer. You have to bring it before Him and say, God, this this has happened. Allow Him to bind those wounds. Allow Him to bring you comfort. Allow Him to speak into the brokenness of this situation, into the brokenness of this world. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, God Almighty is going to bring you justice. He's going to bring justice. One day. And even two But my second piece there is that you need to seek help if these things have happened to you at any point in time in your life and you've never admitted it, you've never confessed it, I implore you, every counselor that you meet, every, every counselor, every doctor that you see, these things, they, they do not go away. They continue with you. They will be brought up into your relationships psychologically, emotionally. They must be uh, confess to a, to a counselor, to a, to a friend, to a loved one, to somebody that you know, that you trust. If you don't bring it up, I, 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 you're going to have to deal with it at some point. It's going to keep coming up. And so my advice to you is that you need to reach out to a friend, a family member. Um, here at Creekside, we recommend Low Country Biblical Counseling uh, right here in North Charleston. If you need to see a counselor for that, I encourage you to to see a counselor, to, to speak up about this. One, so that you might find healing, but two, so that these things might stop. And the more that we bring it to the light, the more these things become less and less and less. And so those are my two pieces of wisdom there, and I believe that that's exactly what Jesus would have us do. But I just want to implore you this morning, I just want to ask you to imagine what it would look like, imagine what it would look like if the church as a whole took this more seriously. Where we began to speak out against the issues of sexual abuse, against rape, against uh, unwanted sexual advances in the workplace, what if the church started to speak out against it more? What if, like men, if we started to stand in the gap for those who don't have fathers, where we truly taught biblical manhood, where, we, where we're tough and where we're tender, all at the same time pointing people to Christ? I think our churches would be more healthy. I think our culture would be more healthy. And I beg you to stand with me on this. This morning our band is going to come and play and And again, I know that I haven't hit everything that needs to be hit. I know that I haven't addressed everything that needs to be said. But I just want to say this, that uh, if you are here this morning and um, you have been affected by that and you just need prayer, I just know that I'm always here, I'm always available. It may not be something that you even want to admit to me, and that's okay. Um, but we are available if you need somebody to pray with, if you need somebody to to talk with, we'll send you to, to good counselors. We'll help you out the best that we can through this. Um, but we want to see you see you healed. Um, and if you're a, a fellow guy this morning, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you this morning during this time during this prayer. Um, you see, there's a, a there's a broken picture of manhood in our culture, in our world, even around this five mile radius. Forty percent of our of our community in a five mile radius. Are single parents. 30% single moms, 8% single dads. That means that there's 30% of our population right around here growing up fatherless. And it's a chain reaction. It's a chain reaction where it's single moms, where they raise up these boys who don't know what manhood is, who commit the crimes just like this. Their our cycle continues. And the best place for us to stand in is right here at home. Men, we have several single moms in our family. And I'm not asking you to be their dad. I'm not asking you to be their grandparent or anything like that. But I'm just asking you to have awareness and to look around. Take a couple hours. Go fishing with them. Take a couple hours. Go Take them to the ball game. Spend some time over coffee. Just let them see you. Let them be around you. Let's not be ones who are silent the issue. Let's pray, Father. We come to you this morning, and such a heavy topic, such a a heavy issue that are culture is just dealing with them. we don't know how to deal with it we don't know how to handle it politics aren't going to fix it nothing out in the culture nothing socially is going to fix this Said in Parkland. It's Maranatha. Oh, Lord, come. God, I pray that your presence might be felt this morning. I pray for the, the ladies, the moms, the wives that have been impacted by this. stand saying that we don't want to see this happen anymore. Give us men the picture of what real biblical manhood looks like.